It's quarter miles travel, where the adventure begins when you reach into your pocket. There's a story behind every state quarter design, a story that can take you on an adventure of your own, from one-of-a-kind landmarks to hometown heroes. Start your journey with Anita and Olivia, one quarter mile at a time. Hi, this is Anita Thomas, radio personality and on-air host of Travel Bags with Anita and Friends. I'm also the creator of Quarter Miles, a travel program with a bit of a different twist. I started this program on my radio show over a year and a half ago. It's all about being inspired to explore our country based on the U.S. Mint state quarters. Most of us were part of that rage of collecting them back in the day. And if you check your pockets or even your sofa cushions, you'll find a few of them waiting to inspire you today. Now, I've been asked, what made you think of a travel segment based on a quarter? I like to share that it was all a part of my annual review of what's been a good fit and what would make programming more interesting, entertaining, and educational. What would inspire our radio friends to go visit destinations around the country? And I feel that Quarter Miles is really all about pride. Pride in our respective states as well as our country. The state quarters feature all that is great about each state. And after all, each state selected what they felt best represented them. As a flight attendant with Pan Am, I travel to over 90 countries, and while there are beautiful destinations all around the world, I wanted to highlight all of the natural beauty of the United States, the history, landmarks, and interesting people who make our country an exceptional place to visit. So come along as we start this adventure, and check your pockets, pull out that quarter and flip it over, and Quarter Mouse Travel will take it from there. We'll help you turn that quarter into an adventure. Welcome to another episode of Quarter Miles Travel, a podcast where we uncover the stories behind the U.S. Mint State Quarter designs. I am Anita Thomas. And I'm Olivia Martin. And we're back again with the Louisiana State Quarter, which has led us to really sort of dig further than what we even imagined, Olivia. I think we thought that we'd kind of do two episodes and we kind of call it, call it a day with, with this one and move on to all these other fascinating stories that are on the back of other state quarters, but we're still here with Louisiana. We're still scratching the surface and really just talking about one element of the state quarter. And there are three prominent features on the Louisiana state quarter, a pelican, a trumpet, and the outline of the Louisiana territory when it was purchased by the United States. As we discussed in our previous Louisiana episodes, the Louisiana Territory had a rich culture and history that dramatically clashed with the incoming Americans after the Louisiana Purchase. Today, we recognize that culture as part of the Creole identity. 
That is very, very true. And Creole encompasses people of several different races, Native American, Spanish, and French colonists, free and enslaved West Africans, and a combination of all of the listed races. So it really encompasses a lot of different people. So we need to keep that in mind when we think about Creole and that word. Now, one place we've been really able to learn more about the Creole identity and how people from different backgrounds interacted is from the plantations that were lined up and down the Mississippi River. And there were quite a few of them. If you look at a map, you might really be surprised to see how many plantations there were along the Mississippi River. These plantations established a lucrative sugar industry that provided another big draw to Americans in addition to the territory. And I think also to Olivia, that is why when you look at the Louisiana Purchase and that whole territory from Louisiana and the Mississippi River all the way up to Canada, that Louisiana was the first state that was carved out because there was so much wealth there. Right, there was already a growing industry and population, so it made sense from a lot of different angles that it would become the first state. Absolutely. And rather than romanticize life on plantations, as we often see in movies and television and just the way that plantations are kind of celebrated today or part of events, Mm -hmm. the tours and exhibits available in Louisiana's plantation country are focused on the people who lived and worked there. In our previous episode, we toured Laura Plantation, where researchers have been at the forefront of providing personal accounts from enslaved people in a way that was not available a few decades ago. And that really is what makes Laura Plantation so fascinating, is that they have done a lot of research and they have a lot of information there. But there are other plantations along the New Orleans Plantation country, and Whitney Plantation is another one that I had a chance to to visit, and it is in Edgar. And though it is really the only plantation museum with the entire focus on slavery, uh, Whitney Plantation is really open to visitors so they can take in uh, sort of the restored buildings, um, hundreds of first-person narratives are there as well for those who were enslaved. So that right there is really a good distinction for people who are really interested in getting those stories and finding out that it was just not a group of people. Because I think Joseph even mentions this when he talks about Laura Plantation, that people think about slaves and slavery as almost like a group, but they were individual people. So here at Whitney, they are having those first-person narratives from those who were enslaved. Now, we had a chance to talk with Joy Banner, who is the Director of Communications, about what visitors can learn from the museum there at Whitney, starting with an immense collection of important documents, including Code Noir, uh, the Black Code, which really describes the terms of slavery in the Louisiana Territory, even before the Louisiana Purchase, that was written and still carried on afterwards. And she explains how the plantation acquired these documents. Okay, so um, this is our Louisiana and slavery exhibit. So um, for the tour, we talked generally about slavery. And so we designed this exhibit um, so to hit on specific points, especially uh, particular to slavery in Louisiana. So these are... Well, first of all, this is Victor Heidel. So I don't know if you know about the Heidels. Sybil Heidel is a descendant of this plantation, and she 
married the first African-American mayor of New Orleans, and they have the third, together they have the third African-American mayor of New Orleans. So Mark Moriel, who's the president of the National Urban League, um, and Dutch Moriel, the convention center is named after in New Orleans. They're descended from this plantation. And so we have a copy of his birth certificate. Um, documents that we've purchased, these are facsimiles, but we do have the original documents were purchased at auction from New Orleans. And so um, this is a, a list of, well, a list of people that are being mortgaged. So for me, I was a, a business professor. So when I see like these instruments of business, a mortgage document with people's name on it, and those are the things that resonate with me and, and just kind of give me the creep factor out of, out of everything. Um, but also, too, in Louisiana, what is particular to in the institution of slavery here is the Code Noir or the Black Code. So this is a book, a manual of the codes, the rules, the laws regulating the slave trade here in Louisiana. And so that's one that we got at auction in New Orleans. And then also a document, Emancipation Notice from 1821. And so um, at that time, if a person was to be free from slavery, a notice had to be posted publicly for a certain, certain time frame. And if anyone was opposed to that person being freed, then they could go and make an argument to the sheriff why that person could not be free. So even when freedom was granted, it still, was come, it still came with conditions and it still was very controlled. So when the, these notices were put up, how often were, was the freedom rejected? You see, and, and I, don't, I don't know what the percentage, if this was um, just a technicality and no one really fought it, or if it really was people, people were are not being allowed to be emancipated because of it. Some people think that because you have, that we, because Louisiana had Code Noir, that the system of slavery here wasn't as harsh and brutal because we had a code that in a, that in a sense is protecting the treatment of enslaved people. But when you start looking at the specific information and the rules regarding slavery, you realize that there really is no, there's not much of an advantage here that they would have, wouldn't have, that they would have had um, here rather than someone else. This is the one that is interesting. Natural fruits or such are the spontaneous produce of the earth, the pr produce and increase of cattle, and the children of slaves are likewise natural wow. fruits. So to, to have children, enslaved people, and cattle all in the same category. In um, number 945, all free persons, even, even minors, lunatics, persons of insane mind, and the like may transmit their estates ad intestado and inherit from others. Slaves alone are incapable of either. So the, luna, the lunatics, persons of insane mind, have access to this. Slaves are incapable of either. Um, and things, slaves cannot marry without the consent of their masters. Um, free persons and slaves are incapable of contracting marriage together. Um, there is the same incapacity and the same nullity with respect to marriages contracted by free white persons with free people of color. Um, so he can do nothing, possess nothing, nor acquire anything but what must belong to his master. A slave is one who is in the power of a master to whom he belongs. The master may sell him, dispose of his person, his industry, and his labor. He can do nothing. So, I mean, these codes are very specific, you know, looking at them um, as to what people were really thinking about in the treatment of, of enslaved people. 
Um, children, of, I think we talked about children of slaves and the young of animals belong to the proprietor of the mother of them by right of accession. Here at Whitney, in addition to slavery, we like to also delve into resistance. And, you know, we have the question of why were people not resisting? Uh, they think that people weren't, re enslaved people were not resisting and, and rebelling. But we look through the laws and we see that, in fact, they were making laws to protect or protect against revolution. Um, so one of the things that they did in 1852, emancipation in Louisiana, only legal if the owner sends the free person to Liberia. You know, so they're doing things to make sure that people that are free, that they're being sent away, that they're not going to be a threat if they're here in the United States. Um, another interesting aspect is, look, 1803, that's the Haitian Revolution. You have federal troops that move into the New Orleans territory specifically to prevent slave insurrections. So they are understanding that people are coming from ha from Haiti and that you have a threat of rebellion, right? Um, so then, look, you have dozens of enslaved people. We have a, uh, have a Cane River region revolt in 1804. Then, bam, the foreign slave trade to the New Orleans territory prohibited. So they locked down people from coming into the United States anymore. And we have, and then we have a, a gradual, um, this, the United States itself bans the foreign slave trade because they're protecting against rebellions and revolutions. And then here, the site that we're going to see, the memorial that we're going to see, is the 1811 slave revolt that happened here in St. John the Baptist Parish. So we um, think that it is the biggest slave revolt at least in the southern United States, but it could be the biggest slave revolt in the United States at all, bigger than, even bigger than Nat Turner's revolution. Um, but this started across the river at a um, plantation. It used to be Andrew Plantation. Right now is Woodland. That plantation is still up. It's in the process of being renovated. So it should be, by next year, it should be renovated and opened as a museum. Um, but enslaved people gathered together, planned the um, rebellion. Plan was to go to each plantation, freeing the enslaved people there, and then march on to New Orleans and free the city. Um, the rebellion was stopped. The militia was gathered together, and the rebellion was stopped. Um, some of them were killed on the spot. The rest were executed, or tried and executed at three plantations that are still um, standing across the river. And after they were executed, their heads were cut off, placed on stakes, lined on the levee from here to New Orleans. And they often were placed in front of the plantations that they ran away from. And that was a sign that this is what happens when you try to escape for your own freedom. Again, so this idea of, of resistance is something that we want to reinforce because we, we think that they didn't resist and they didn't know better and they didn't know freedom. Or, you know, this, this awful quote that's attributed to Harriet Tubman that I could have free, I freed so many people, but I could have freed 100,000 more, um, you know, except for their minds. She did not say that. You know, Harriet Tubman would never say anything like that because she understood that people really desired their freedom. You know, and it wasn't about you being courageous, but you were living in a system where you were constantly being terrorized and that was controlling. I mean, they had laws. They were gathering militia. They were building that into the system to prevent you from escaping slavery. Sometimes we get comments that at Whitney we exaggerate or we sensationalize things and... Tell me if we tell me how can we sensationalize? This is truth here, and it's brutal and it's sensational because it happened. But, but it happened. Um, so 
just looking at that, I think it, it speaks volumes about the institution of slavery. As Joy explains, these documents helped dispel common misconceptions about slavery, such as the idea that Code Noir made life any easier or safer for enslaved people seeking freedom, and the assumption that enslaved people made little effort to rebel and overthrow plantation owners. There's concrete evidence that these ideas were far from the truth. The resources at Whitney Plantation also tell us about the kinds of successful crops grown in the area and where depots selling enslaved people were located throughout Louisiana. White gold um, refers to sugarcane. So this is a very profitable industry. So the indigo is first and... Then sugarcane, yep. So never any rice. So we, we do believe that rice was grown um, even when, it, even when we had sugarcane crops, we think that there would have been some rice grown. That was probably not the primary cash crop. Uh, my great uncle worked here, of course, after emancipation um, in the, would have been the 30s and 40s and 50s. He worked here, and while he was here, he did the, um, they were making mostly rice. So it, it switches between sugarcane and rice production. So this is the routing that the sugar would have taken? This is a triangle, yeah, trade connected, um, and then enslaved. Let me see which one this is. Yeah, so this is uh, the, the trade route of the slave trade. This map is um, from 1849, but the historic New Orleans collection went through and with these red dots, and you can walk on it. These are all of the slave depots in New Orleans. So throughout the Central Business District, um, Jackson Square, right there. And right now, New Orleans is in the process of two organizations that are, walk, that are going around and placing markers of where these slave depots were in New Orleans. You know, there was at, at Essence Fest, Fest, we had a booth, and someone from Alabama said, well, I didn't know that... Um, Louisiana had so much slavery in it, or New Orleans. I didn't realize that that was a Louisiana thing. And I said, you do realize New Orleans was like your biggest, one of the biggest slave trading ports, if not the biggest, and all around the city, you're walking around it. And I was telling them about the construction, the architecture, like all of these buildings. If you see a building, an um, old building, and it's not facing the street, there's a courtyard, and it's facing the building, those were slave quarters. And I mean, if you understand the architecture, you go around the city and you see that it's everywhere all around you. LaJoy's family lineage can be traced back to an enslaved person who lived and worked on Laura Plantation. In previous episodes about plantations in Louisiana, it was suggested that being a domestic enslaved person somehow maybe had some perks or held a hierarchy over enslaved people who worked outside on the plantation property or in the fields, as some people may say. But as Joy explains, domestic work had its own dangers, and especially for enslaved women. This revelation led to a discussion on a practice that took place on plantations that may once again disrupt preconceived notions of what took place. So what's this one? Franklin and Armfield? So this is Franklin and Armfield, who were major slave traders out of New Orleans. And as you can see, they traded exclusively with Natchez and New Orleans. Um, my, uh, me and Joe's ancestor was sold through 
their outfit down here to New Orleans and our ancestor was sold to Laura Plantation. And what's, what's really creepy about it is there's a book, um, Bacon Tate was a, the trader who traded our ancestor or sold our ancestor into slavery. And there's a book about Bacon Tate. He married unofficially a free woman of color. So slave traders, most uh, genteel women did not want to be associated with slave traders. So they would often marry or partner with free, with free women of color. And so that's what happened in this situation. Um, and then the book, you know, Bacon Tate is talking about sitting down to dinner with Franklin and Ormfield. And, you know, it's just like I'm wondering, like, what were they talking about? I mean, they were. And it says they were talking about my ancestor that was being sold. And, you know, it was just it was very powerful and sad, you know, to read, you know, literally read something about my ancestor um, in that sense. But also, too, with... We have this panel here because we talk about the what, fancy girls. Now, fancy girls, again, were young, light-skinned women who were sold basically for sex slavery, also trained in domestic skills, and so um, was, were sold at a premium so that they could be in the house as pretty sex slaves. And that's when we have, have this conversation um, about being a, a domestic enslaved person be, versus being in the field. Um, and some people erroneously think that it would be better to be in the house. If you're in the house, then as a young woman, as a young girl, you are constantly in the eyesight of you have sexual predators all around you. Not just the men that's living in the house, but the men that are visiting the house. You know, which they had a lot of visitors. So you are constantly um, in their eyesight. You can't run away from them. And women in the house usually, you know, ended up pregnant, and which is why we have our Victor Heidel descendant. You know, it was his mother was purchased as a companion for the mistress of the plantation, Azalee Heidel. And when her brother came to visit, um, she was sexually assaulted by that brother, became pregnant. Um, and she did at least make the, make the, or let the baby be taken to St. John the Baptist Parish Church. And um, was, he was baptized. But even though he was a high Delton of that family, he was still enslaved. Anna, the, the, um, the little girl, she was enslaved until emancipation. So he didn't get any kind of special treatment, per se, because he was of the Heidel family. So your ancestor that you know that was being sold and discussed, uh, what's being shown here, what's that person's name? His name is Alfred Brown. Mm-hmm. And me and Joe are also descendants of Victor Heidel as well. So we're both descended from this, from this plantation and from Laura Plantation. And, I, and we think St. Joseph. We don't have as much documentation for that yet. What's this about with the women here? They're rolling, raising the children in particular. And if, if, you have, if you haven't taken the time to go and, and look at the photographs of women that, these photographs of the women who took care of these white children, you have, I mean, it's really, really, really sad, but powerful photos of these children, these these family members, you can see the sadness in their eyes as they're taking care of these children. Some of them are, are children themselves taking care of little babies. Um, so you can see just this, this sense of forlornness, this, this sense of sadness um, in those photos. But then also, too, also when we talk about slavery, you know, like Sojourner, Sojourner Truth, aren't I a woman? You know, we often overlook the roles of women in this. And as women, 
not only are they having to fend off the men in the big house, but they're also having to fend off the men that are enslaved with them. Why? Because you have a workforce that is predominantly men, right? They're created so that you have the most value being, you need more field workers, or um, you need more people in the field, need more men, so you're creating a society where there's more men than there are women. There's more young people than there are old people. So you're throwing off a social system. You're in, it's an imbalance. And so women are out having to fight, protect themselves, or do their best to protect themselves, not only in the big house, but also fend off you know, men that are enslaved with them as well. Um, and women... Their value, again, is being, is being determined by their ability to have children. So we have um, a narrative where a, that describes a woman who, because she had 12, 13 children, then she's valued very highly. The master allows her. She, she doesn't have to do any field work. So she just needs to stay in the house and keep getting pregnant. And he sells off the babies. She was basically doing bread. See, the slave traders commonly use the term breeder to describe women who had many child-bearing years ahead of them. And so they didn't work, you're saying they didn't necessarily have work to do, per se, especially not strenuous work. In, in that, in, in the narrative, so that just refers to that one particular narrative where the master was so happy that she was having so many babies, she didn't have to do any field work. Now, was that true across the board? Probably not. But yeah, but if you had a, a, a woman that was making a lot of babies that can be sold into slavery, then she is very valuable to the master. And also you have men that, that are set up in cabins, ones that have good stock, and they're called studs, so they literally are referred to as studs. And you move one woman in there, get her pregnant, move her out, move another woman in there, get her pregnant, move her out. So basically there was also breeding that was going on outside of just people seeing each other and having sex and then having babies, but it was purposefully. Right. So the natural increase is you're going to have men and women together and you have a natural increase, right? But then they were specifically breeding people and studying people to have children. And I think they say in this passage that... um, I think they specifically say that it's more valuable for them to breed people than to be actually part of the industry of the crop industry itself. So um, then, yeah, Franklin actually bought the plantations. One was Angola, which is not a Louisiana state penitentiary, which was formerly a plantation. So we see the connection between slavery and mass incarceration. Mass incarceration. The 13th Amendment banned slavery except as a form of punishment. So the loophole around it is, well, punish people. Punish them. Put them in jail, and then you can, you can enslave them again. And, and that's what happened. So was Whitney, was this plantation more a, a breeding plantation, or was that just generally something that happened? Um, so, and that's for breeding, that happened more so on the East Coast. So, and then they were walking, they were shipped down here. However, the mistress of the plantation at Laura went to Virginia, I believe, and got her own stock of 14 or 15-year-old girls and brought them here for the purpose of having her own 
stock of slaves. But you're saying they were specifically brought because oh, yeah. they were young and he, they could breed. She went and got girls. Yeah. I mean, why are you getting girls? Because mm-hmm. you obviously need more people in the field. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, they. She went. She got girls. See, I don't think people necessarily think of that part of slavery. I think they think of the master and the people like going to the slave cabins at night, mm-hmm. and then the babies are produced. But I don't think they necessarily think of it as a business side of it that people were being bred and. Mm-hmm. So well, the value of a person, and then we'll talk a little bit about um, babies and, and the infant mortality rates after this, but the value of an enslaved person, when they quote-unquote appreciated, so that's around the age of about 30 years old, when they have, they're at the peak of their skills, right, and they still have enough time in front of them, so they have a lot of value in them, Thirty dollars to $40,000 in today's money. Thirty to forty thousand dollars. So if you are can get into the slave trade and sell people, then of course it's going to be a business for you. And again, you have you have uh, people like Franklin Lawrence who realized that it was more profitable to do that than to be in any kind of crop production. With the children and with babies, we have uh, our field of angels is dedicated to twenty two hundred children that died in enslavement here in St. John Parish. 39 to 40 of them died here at Whitney Plantation, including um, some of them that were struck by lightning. So when when, um, lightning happens at Whitney, like we have people recorded, these children recorded as being struck by lightning and killed. One of the the factors that we like to bring out about um, the children in particular is the nutrition of the mom and, and the overall nutrition of the enslaved people. They're getting rations. Um, so they're not getting enough to really sustain them. Um, and, it's, and people will ask, well, I don't, it doesn't make sense that they're not being well-fed if they're so valuable, so why would you starve them? Well, they believe that black bodies don't need as much nutrition, that they can withstand more hunger, that they can withstand more pain. And also it's the economics of it, right? So if I can reduce the amount of food that I give to my enslaved people, then I'm saving this much money. And so you, you're just trying to find like that the, the least amount of cost that you can put into it. Um, so the nutrition was not very good, and enslaved people would have to often hunt and fish in order to um, supplement what they were getting. And the food that they were getting, the, the rations was, were full of sugar, full of starch, full of carbohydrates. So it was not nutritious anyway. Um, so this leads to an increased infant mortality rate in a slave population. And also, too, if you think about the value of a baby, they don't really have any skills yet. There's a potential for value, right? But they haven't really acquired that, that skill yet. So the master has to factor in the cost of treating a child versus the value of a child. Mm. And you know, babies and children are you know, grouped together and sold with the mom usually as a package deal. So you're looking at you know, a couple hundred dollars um, for babies. So their value is low at that point. They have the potential you know, to be $40,000 when they're 30 years old, but at you know, six months, yeah. They don't have a lot of value yet. So what age then would, would um, a young child, an infant, kind of be considered then more valuable at, say, three or four? Well, five? At, at three, because a lot of them didn't survive until the age of, of two or three. And we see a lot of babies that didn't even get named until they reached two or three years of age. So that's when you see that. You, well, that's when you um, 
we think that a baby will survive and that it will start accumulating value. Now, children started working at the age of 10 years old, usually started apprenticing, like doing like lighter jobs, bringing food and water out to the field hands. Um, but yeah, and, and we also, about 12 years old, would start apprenticing for the blacksmith shop. But yeah, at about 10 years old, your childhood was over, expected to produce. Throughout Whitney Plantation, the Senegalese influence is evident. Although it's true that the Creole identity consists of a number of different backgrounds, it's important to acknowledge the fact that several of the most prominent fixtures of Creole identity can actually be traced further back to Senegalese traditions. Here, Joy talks about the Whitney Plantation's efforts to educate visitors on how many foods and customs that are considered to be Creole actually can be traced back to West Africa. Now, on the outside of the, this museum here, you have uh, from Senegal, I think it is. Mm -hmm. what, so what's, what's the, why did you guys put that there? The so uh, most of the enslaved people that are in this region of Louisiana come from the Senegambia region. So Senegal, we have a lot of the culture, a culture transfer from Senegal here. Even the French language that is spoken in Senegal is very similar to the French language that's spoken in Louisiana. Um, some of the foods, the music, uh, is a lot, a lot of cultural transfer between here and Senegal. So would, the, would those slave ships have come from Senegal here and not gone like maybe to the East Coast? They would have kind of come, come so around? So they you know? would have gone because Senegal is where um, the French had colonized and set up a trading port there. So it was a, they had a, not a direct route, but they were transferring from West Africa straight to New Orleans. Mm -hmm. So, so and, and I mean, and that makes a difference in our culture. And I think that's the reason why um, Louisiana has preserved a lot of African elements in the culture, because they were coming straight from Africa here. And where, would I, where was I reading that Creole, Creolism in Louisiana and New Orleans had more African traits than Creole communities throughout the United States? Or like the, like the Gullah communities and all, but Louisiana Creole retained more of the African qualities too. I think Gwendolyn Midlow Hall in one of her articles speaks to that. And we often forget, of, and I mean, and the word Creole has so many different meanings, and a lot of them are incorrect. But let's just take the, the commonly referred to Creole, you know, a combination of African, European, Native American. But often in there, we, we focus more on the, on the French part of it. And even as French people, I mean, as Creole people in Louisiana, black Creoles, they focus on that French part of it. Well, that's kind of France's way of... Um, well, how shall we say, taking over things or assimilating? You know, so you, they're, they're, uh, the English basically want a separation of races and separation of cultures, whereas the French want to assimilate. Like, we just want to come, we're going to work with you, we're going to intermarry, and, all, and pretty soon you're not going to be Native American anymore. You're going to be French or Creole. You're not going to be African anymore. You're going to be Creole. And so we, um, have a, we start seeing a distance when we refer to gumbo and jambalaya as Creole and Cajun foods. And we forget, no, these are African foods. They come directly from Africa. Um, so, I mean, so those types of things. And, and that's what we try to do uh, here at Whitney is 
to remind people of how much African contributions to not only the food, but the culture, technology, building is present in Louisiana culture now. Among the collections at Whitney Plantation, one particular series of sculptures really stands out. It's called the Children of Whitney Plantation, and it was created by the artist Woodrow Nash. It's meant to represent formerly enslaved people who were children at the time of emancipation. These sculptures are very, very striking in their attention to detail, from the period-appropriate clothing to the very, very distinct facial expressions of each child. So um, Woodrow Nash, um, I think he, he displays at Jazz Fest. And that's where John Cummings met him. But of course, you know, he has his tribal, his African tribal pieces, which is just some of my favorite art ever. It's beautiful. And um, John saw it and asked him if he could make statues specifically of children. John wanted the children. Um, and make them in clothing that enslaved children would have worn. And so he made these specially for, um, for Whitney, came on site. We had a special kiln for him. And he made the children of Whitney. And that's what they're called? They're, they're are, they are called the children of Whitney, specially commissioned by Whitney Plantation. Um, they, and they are sold in, um, in New Orleans in the Angela King Gallery, but they are, will always have to be referred to as the children of Whitney. I mean, these children have, I mean, they really resonate. You know, and that's, that was John's purpose, that people would be compassionate when you're talking about children. And so, I mean, and we definitely see that, in fact, with this whole debate about immigration and children being separated from their parents. And Whitney was mentioned, and, you know, they showed that we had, a, had the picture of the children. Um, so, I mean, it, it, it is a, and he's such a beautiful artist. I mean, it, it just, they're so real and they're so lifelike. He is a fantastic artist. He is. As we've learned from Laura and Whitney Plantation, it's crucial to tell the stories of enslaved people, to seek out all available information and preserve firsthand accounts. The Louisiana Territory, which eventually became a crucial region of the United States, was industrialized off the forced labor of enslaved people. Traditions from their homelands of Senegal and Gambia influenced how buildings were constructed, crops were grown, foods were eaten, language was spoken, and so on, all coming together to help shape what is now known as the Creole identity. If you'd like to see Whitney Plantation's collections for yourself, visit www.whitneyplantation.com. And Olivia, I, I would always say too that you know these are great opportunities to go and see things personally for yourself because I learned so much. I learned so much really about something that I felt that I already knew a lot about. So going to these plantations, going to this area, and there are many more that, that you can see in addition to the ones that we've talked about here. As a matter of fact, there's another one that I would suggest people going to that is called Oak Alley. So finally, let's talk a little bit about that location where you can learn more about sugarcane plantations at Oak Alley, but then also taking it a step further, you can really have a very immersive experience of all of the different plantations because you can actually stay there. So Oak Alley goes beyond tour options. It is also the home to a full service restaurant, overnight rental cottages on the plantation grounds, and you just get a chance to really walk around at your leisure and really explore what life would have been like and just see the plantation you know, for yourself firsthand. 
So listen to our interview with Augusta Darwin. He's the site interpreter for Oak Alley Plantation. And here you'll learn a little bit more about Oak Alley's history and what visitors can experience today. Thank you so much for taking a couple of minutes to speak with me and inviting me here to Oak Alley Plantation. I'm particularly interested in the slave exhibit that you have here and the slave cabins and how you can have really an experience to really get a feel of what the day-to-day -day life may have been like for the slaves who worked here on the plantation. So can you start off by just giving us a little bit of an overview of what people can experience coming here? Yes, ma'am. So when visitors come to Oak Alley, um, one of the first things, the first exhibits that they will see is our Slave Rat Oak Alley exhibit. The exhibit consists of 12 reconstructed slave cabins that were built very recently in 2013, with, with all of our originals being demolished around 1905. So unfortunately, we don't have any of the originals, but we do have pictures of those originals. And using those pictures, we were able to construct these reconstructions to look similar and built in the same style. And using archeological surveys, we were able to place these very near the original foundation. So visitors will see and be in the same spots that the enslaved community once constantly lived and worked in. Um, throughout the exhibit, visitors will learn about many different enslaved individuals that were once here at Oak Alley and learn about their daily lives. So in one cabin, they'll get to see how people like um, Ponya or Anna, the house slaves, once lived while here at Oak Alley. In another exhibit, they'll get to read about a woman named Amelia who was a field slave and see exactly how she lived. And learning this history through these individual people kind of personalizes it for visitors. Well, it really does. But before we jump into the day-to-day -day lives because I really want to hear those stories. I think that's going to be fascinating because it does put a face and a name and the life onto slaves instead of just grouping them as slaves. But tell us a little bit about, or maybe you can describe, what the slave cabin looks like. Yes, ma'am. So the slave cabin is what today we would call a duplex. It's basically a cabin that has a solid wall running through the middle, and that solid wall will divide one cabin up into two rooms. And at the time, a family would have been made to live in each room. The, each side of each room essentially has two doors, which are symmetrical across from each other, which would have been built like that to capture the breezes as they pass on the hot Louisiana days. And each cabin, each side of the cabin also would have had a window to provide um, extra ventilation. And then um, each side of the cabin did have its own fireplace where a family could use to cook meals and during the winter time have fires to stay warm. And something that's interesting is that each cabin was originally built up off of the ground, built on um, small posts of bricks. They're built off the ground in order to provide extra ventilation, so having breezes pass under the cabin and through the floors, um, and also to prevent minor flooding. And how many in a family would have lived on each side, uh, averagely speaking? So averagely speaking, there would have been roughly about four individuals living on each side. But as we know, each family can be a different size. Some families might be six, some five. But on average, about four individuals living on each side of the cabin. Now, I want to jump in ahead because I am so interested in hearing the stories of the individuals that you named earlier that were actual slaves here on the Oak Alley Plantation. Yes, ma'am, yes. Thankfully for Oak Alley with our research team, 
we have acquired the names of roughly 220 individuals that were once here. And so um, through those names, we can have a snapshot into the daily lives of an enslaved individual. A daily life of one individual all varied uh, depending on where they were working pretty much. So for those that worked inside the house, they were obviously not working out in the hot sun, but they had the constant stress of doing everything perfectly because since they were inside the house, they were always working right in front of the Roma family. So they had that constant stress of making sure they did everything perfectly. And, you know, they worked pretty much on call as long as the Romas were awake. So working very early in the morning and working very early uh, until the night, until the Roma family went to bed. So what would some of those duties have been? So for the house slaves, some of those duties included um, cooking, cleaning the big house, uh, washing clothes for the Romas, supervising their children, and um, also serving uh, dinners, especially dinner parties, like uh, if the Romas threw a dinner party with people coming from around the area. Part of their duties will also include um, serving those dinners. And also um, even smaller tasks like sewing clothes or even some people were specifically titled as hairdressers for basically fixing Selena and her daughter's hair. Early salons. Yes, early <laughs> salons. And what were some of the other um, duties and responsibilities that are featured here as part of the slave exhibit with the slaves that are featured here? So some of the other duties, we go into some of the craftsmen that were once here on the plantation. At Oak Alley, there were gardeners, such as a man named Antoine, responsible for taking care of all those oak trees that lined the front of the house. But we also talk about his brother, Bacchus, who was a teamster. He was responsible for the care and upkeep of all the livestock on the plantation and responsible for driving them out through the fields. But we also go into some duties and details about the field slaves who were a majority of the enslaved community that was once here and the different duties that they had throughout the year based on the month from planting sugarcane, fixing ditches and canals, and processing that sugarcane into sugar. So let me back up though to the slaves that were actually working in the house. Were there also additional slaves that lived in the house? Not that we know of. So far, we believe that all the enslaved uh, individuals that worked inside the house still would have lived with the rest of the enslaved community out in the cabins like this one. So there were no personal slaves, so to speak? No, ma'am. The closest, I would say, would be a man named Detterville, who um, was with Jacques for roughly around 27 years, up until Jacques Roma passed away. And Detterville continued to stay with the Roma family. They gave him a lot of duties uh, that would kind of shape him as the personal slave. He worked oftentimes as a personal assistant. They even would send him oftentimes to New Orleans to run errands for them. We don't know exactly where Detterville would have lived, but it may be possible they lived inside the house or even in the butler's pantry. Unfortunately, the Romans never actually recorded where he was living while here at Oak Alley. Now, the slaves that would have worked in the sugarcane fields, were they kept separate? Uh, because it sounds like what you're describing is that people were housed kind of based on what their duties and their responsibility or their skill level or skill, um, their skills were. That's exactly correct. People were housed basically how their skills were. We know that the original 20 cabins that were here were arranged all in a row and evenly spaced from each other. But we can assume that house slaves lived closer to the house with the field slaves living closer to the fields. Um, so not physically being kept separate, but in many day-to-day -day lives, you can see how they were separate. So for example, the house slaves 
oftentimes received better clothing that would have even been store-bought in New Orleans. Since they worked inside the house um, and visitors would have seen them, they were kept to always look presentable versus the field slaves who had handmade shoes and handmade clothing. And so if someone was working out in the fields, their clothing is falling apart and they see the house slaves and their clothing is nice, you can assume that there still would be that separation, that strife, which purposely would have been done by the Roma family to um, keep the sense of community from coming together. I see, I see. So purposely kind of set up in order to kind of keep people separate. Yes, ma'am. A system of divide and conquer, if you will. Divide and conquer. Now, what was the day like then for those slaves that worked in the sugarcane fields? So for the uh, slaves that worked on the sugarcane fields, they obviously had the most demanding work. On an average day, roughly they would be working from sunup to sundown. Uh, so roughly about 12 to 14 hours, with their only break really being their lunch break. And the lunch actually would have been brought to them out in the fields. So for lunch, they wouldn't leave and come to their cabins. Lunch would be brought to them, also along with water. They would have to wait for water until it was actually brought to them working out in the fields. Once the sun went down is when they would end their duties in the fields, but they oftentimes would have to come back to their own cabins, do a lot of the work that they had to do for themselves, clean up cab their cabins, take care of their children, even take care of their own gardens where they grew their own fruits and vegetables to eat and survive off of. So um, um, what, what was the lifespan then of, say, slaves that worked in the field? Do you all have any record of that? Because it sounds like that would be pretty pretty harsh if it's Louisiana sun. Yes, it was pretty harsh. Generally in South Louisiana, um, from what I've learned, the general, the average lifespan for an enslaved individual working out in the sugar fields was about the early 50s. We do have some individuals here at Oak Alley that went past that into their early to mid 60s, but generally on sugar fields and in, in sugar plantations in Louisiana, it was roughly about early 50s. That was the average lifespan. Now, I noticed that there's also the sick house, so tell me a little bit about that and how that was set up. Yes, ma'am. So the sick house was very common on plantations. It would have been basically a cabin where sick and slave individuals would have went to be treated. Here at Oak Alley, there were um, about, there were two enslaved nurses, a woman named Augustine and a woman named Thalia. When anyone was sick, they would be the ones to treat them using mostly traditional healing methods that were learned from indigenous communities in Louisiana and also bringing some from West Africa. In very serious cases, they could ask for pharmaceutical medicines that would have been bought in New Orleans, but those medicines would have been kept either with the Roma family or with uh, the overseer. And in the very serious cases, like a um, complications in childbirth or a workplace accident, Right next to our St. Joseph's Plantation once lived Dr. Marique, who was kind of the on-call doctor for this area. And in those most serious cases, they could call Dr. Marique if Augustine or Thalia was not able to heal someone or, like I said, if it was a major incident or a major emergency. But um, the sick house looks very different from doctor's office or hospitals today. They're very bare bones minimum. Usually, there were just a few beds, um, chamber pots, and buckets of water. So oftentimes an individual could pick up another illness from simply just being inside of the sick house on top of the one that they went there to get treated for in the first place. So with the Romars, if they were ill, would they call in a doctor yes. for themselves? Yes, ma'am. For the Roma family, uh, if they were ill, they would call in the doctor. Um, who with the slaves, they would just kind of tend to themselves. With yes, ma'am. 
The, so for the Romans, they had that doctor that really trained as a doctor. For the safe community, they had Augustine and Thalia. There was a doctor, Dr. DeRay, that would come once a year to perform checkups on the enslaved community. That was paid for by the Romans. But those checkups were basically checkups to make sure that they were healthy enough to still work. And if they weren't healthy enough to work, get them back healthy to where they could work. So in the slave cabins, how did the arrangements uh, switch or transfer or change as people were um, maybe passed or died or maybe were sold to other plantations? So, since it was families that were staying in Yes. The so since there, there were families, once people passed away or were sold away, um, basically it would be new people to fill in that extra space. No one individual would get just half of a cabin to their own. So mostly if there was someone here on the plantation that didn't have family members here or um, no relatives, no friends, they most likely would have just been put with a family member uh, I'm sorry, a family that got extra space in their cabin from someone being passed away or someone being sold away. What, what is this big pot that's here? So this big pot right behind us is actually the laundry kettle. So one of the duties of some of the house slaves would be to wash clothes. Here particularly there was a woman named Anna who was the Roma family's laundress. So she would have to fill up a big kettle like this with water and she also would have made her own soap to wash all those clothes. And you can imagine, um, just like detergent is nowadays, that soap would be very strong and very harsh. Anna, uh, which was pretty common for laundresses, would have had essentially chemical burns on her hands and skin from washing all those clothes by hand in the big kettles like this. And making the soap as well. Yes, ma'am. Mm -hmm. And uh, let's see that there's a well there. So would that well have been actually been there during... No, no ma'am. That well is just a recreation of what they looked like, and we have it by the exhibit for visitors to see. But actually right behind us, roughly where that um, um, electric post is now, is where the original well would have been. So still fairly close to the cabins. So if people are coming to this particular area, we know we want them to come to Oak Alley. Yes. So how can they find out more information and uh, arrange or buy tickets ahead of time or buy them here? What's the, how, how do they go about it? What's the process? So we do have a website, oakalleyfoundation.org, where they can learn more information about Oak Alley um, from its antebellum periods, learn about the Roma family, but also learn about the enslaved community, including our database, and even learning some information about after the Civil War and after the antebellum period. The easiest way to get tickets is to just come here and buy tickets from the ticket booth. We do accommodate tour groups, but we also do take um, individual walk-ins. We do uh, very frequent tours of the big house, which are the only guided tours here, uh, roughly every 30 minutes. And then the rest of the grounds are up for self-exploring, self-guide. But just like myself, uh, there are going to be site interpreters out to provide extra information for visitors and speak with them one-on-one -on -one so visitors can learn history and learn more information each at their own pace. Um, one question I oftentimes do get is where or if there was a cemetery for the enslaved community at Oak Alley. And actually there wasn't. Since the Roma family was Catholic, all of their enslaved individuals were baptized as Catholics. And the Catholic Church kept very detailed records. So those baptism records provide um, the children who were born here at Oak Alley and who their mothers were but also when an enslaved individual passed away, they were actually buried in the Catholic cemetery. Um, so there wasn't a cemetery for the enslaved community here, they were buried in the Catholic cemetery. 
And so um, that is something that's pretty unique that um, a lot of people are happy and it's something new that they can learn about. Well, the plantation is named Oak Alley for a reason. Yes, ma'am. So for my listeners, would you give a description of just the beauty of the of the oaks and it oak trees and it almost sounds a little strange to I guess maybe for some people to describe it as being beautiful when you're talking about a slavery period of time but it really is beautiful in terms of the scenery with the oak trees hence your name Oak Alley yes ma'am yes the grounds are beautiful even though it was once a sugar plantation that does have a dark history right at the front of the big house is an alley of 28 uh, oaks that run um, symmetrical right across from each other. Those 28 oaks were planted by the original owners, Jacques Roma, uh, using enslaved labor. And that beautiful site does give a our name, Oak Alley. And it's always important to keep in mind the history. Even though that alley is beautiful and is what essentially makes us famous, it was planted using enslaved labor. But just those those oaks still standing here today and the beauty of them, I feel is a testament to the enslaved community here and to the work and their resilience, just like the resilience of those oak trees. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate this. This is great conversation to have with you and great information to share with my listeners. So thank you so much. Great. You're welcome. And thank you. For so thank you for joining us as we discovered intriguing and very fascinating stories. Olivia and I did a lot of research with this, and we were so inspired by the state quarter, Louisiana State Quarter, that we just kept digging deeper and deeper, especially about this particular part. But as you mentioned, Olivia, there are two other symbols on the back of the Louisiana State Quarter, so we're coming back to talk about Louisiana again in the future. Many more times, it seems like. <laughs> <laughs> Many more times, because we have to talk about the music. Because when I think about Louisiana, I definitely think about the music there. Oh, absolutely. I'm really excited to dive into that. But I'm also really glad that we did talk about Louisiana's plantation country and how it helped build the state. Because it may not always be easy to hear or to learn about, but it's still important to learn about and to remember these people. And luckily we have the resources now to really put faces to names, to learn individual stories. So now is you know the best time to really learn those human stories because they happened. We can't change that and we shouldn't gloss over it. Well, I, I agree with you so much on that, Olivia. And sometimes you're right, it's very, very hard to face history and the things that happen the things that our ancestors may have been involved in or how our ancestors may have had had to live their lives with no other options uh, in the case of the enslaved uh, enslaved people but it but you're right i mean it is history there's no way to go back and change that there's no time machines to kind of go back with our knowledge today and kind of change things that just doesn't exist but what does exist are the opportunities to go and read and hear these stories, especially now that they are being that they are being captured and captured in a way that shows really the full picture, not only just of the enslaved people, but of the families that enslaved people and that own the plantations. Because knowing the full story is what I think helps us to really fully understand all of the dynamics that were involved in that period of time. So with that said, we'd love to hear you all's comments. There's always lots of ways that you can provide comments. We know that this has been 
pretty in- intense, actually, in some in some cases, even for us, for Olivia and I, in doing the research and coming and sharing it with you. So if you have thoughts, if you have feelings, if you have experiences, maybe some of you have been to the New Orleans plantation country. We'd love to hear your feedback. You can certainly do that in the bottom here in the comment section, but you can also send us emails directly to Travel Bags with Anita, quarter miles at Travel Bags with Anita, and um, we'd love to hear it. We would. So thank you again for listening today. Uh, it is history and there's no way to change it, but we can learn, we can grow, we can expand our knowledge, believing that we can use these stories and this history to live a much better life today. Quarter Miles Travel would like to extend a very special thank you to the following companies, organizations, and people. New Orleans Plantation Country, Hub Destination Management, United Front Transportation, and owner Dana James, Whitney Plantation, Oak Alley Plantation, Joe Banner, Kyle Mills, and a very special thank you to the tour guides who led us through this conversation. Joy Banner with Whitney Plantation and Augusta Darwin with Oak Alley Plantation.